I am truly so excited to be here. I have been in your beautiful city since, um, when was it, Wednesday that I got here? And um, I'm leaving tomorrow morning and I'm so bummed, but I'm so excited to give this talk because I have six kids, my oldest is 10, so this is my last chance to speak without being interrupted for weeks. So I am so excited to be here. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story. It's lots of spoilers for the book. I become Catholic at the end. So you don't need to read it now. Um, so uh, I'll tell you a little bit about that story and I'm going to leave time for Q&A so we can talk about anything that you want to talk about and then I will be signing books out there afterward. So to start at the beginning, I was always an atheist. I was a lifelong atheist. I was a second generation atheist. Um, my father became an atheist when he was a, a teenager. He was forced to go to some, some Baptist you know, re religion classes or Methodist religion classes when he was a young person. And he had a lot of questions that just weren't getting answered. He's an engineer. His father is an engineer. So he has that really logical, linear way of thinking. He needs evidence. He needs answers. And in, these, you know, in this area where he was in at the time, it was rural Texas, 1950s, 1960s, there weren't a lot of atheists back then. So they didn't know how to answer his questions. So he became an atheist. And, and when I was a child, he was, he was a serious atheist. I mean, my, we weren't one of those families that just didn't talk about religion. We did talk about it, and we talked about how crazy it was. <laughs> when, when I was a kid, um, my dad would read me books at night, and the main things we read were the Nancy Drew series and books by Carl Sagan. So I, I was in fifth grade, you know, being like, yes, you know, science disproves religion. This makes no sense. Um, my dad, though, he now says he is agnostic. So we're moving the right direction. <laughs> pray, pray for him. This is, this is really going the right direction. My mom is not an atheist. She is what philosophers call a Maceist. And that is someone who is far more concerned with whether Macy's has an additional 30% off this weekend <laughs> than whether there's a compelling case for a monotheistic god. So she, now, she is the type of person who just didn't talk about religion. Um, as I detail in the book, she actually came from a Catholic family. She came from a culturally Irish Catholic family. And she fell away so far that when I was in high school, I asked someone a ridiculous question. And they answered by saying, come on, is the Pope Catholic? And I actually had to take aside the person next to me and say, is the Pope Catholic? <laughs> I didn't know Pope's Catholicism. I didn't know if one had anything to do with the other. I didn't know whether it was a rhetorical yes or no. So we did not speak about religion ever. My mom came from this mysterious place called the Northeast, called New England. And supposedly, so I'd heard when I was a child in Texas, it was not common in this New England place to turn to the person in line next to you at Walmart and ask how their walk with Christ is going. Um, we do that in Texas, supposedly not so common in the Northeast. So for, for, my, for my mother, talking about religion would be like talking about your rash. I mean, it's just something very private, very inappropriate. You absolutely keep it to yourself. So, but, so my dad and I really bonded on this, this atheism. It just came naturally to me. A, a strict atheist materialist worldview seemed very natural to me. It seemed very true to me for as long as I can remember. You know, I, I believe this podium is here because I can observe it. I can see it. To me, people talking about God 
would be like them saying, oh yeah, right out there, there's a blue car. And I'd be like, okay, okay, cool, can I go see it? No, you can't see the blue car, no, you can't, it's invisible. Like, that, that's how I thought, like, how can you believe in something that you can't interact with, that you can't observe, that you can't measure in any way? That made absolutely no sense to me. Another thing about my, my atheistic family culture is that it was very important to my dad and to my parents to be good people. My, my parents are very moral people. They are some of the selfless, most selfless people I've ever met. And in fact, while I'm here right now, my parents are watching my kids, my six kids, so that I can be out here doing this. They're, they're very, very good people. And what we said at the time is, is we said, you know, we want, to good, we want to be good people just for the sake of it. We want to serve others and love others out of the goodness of our hearts and not because a man in the sky tells us what to do, not because we fear, fear hellfire. We want to do it, just do it for goodness sakes. So that was something that I really, I really prided our, my family on. And, and I, I lived in the Bible Belt. I was surrounded by Christians. And you know, as it is when you live in a predominantly Christian culture, if you are looking for bad behavior among a group, uh, among a group of people whose ideology you disagree with, you can find it. You can always find it if you look hard enough. And so I would look around, you know, I would see these Christians who, you know, weren't, weren't, they would cheat on tests or, you know, would be unkind or uncaring. And I'd think, there you go. The atheists have the lock on, on goodness and on generosity. And these Christians, you know, they're, they're only good because the man in the sky tells them to be good. And then, you know, and then it gets old and they don't care and, and you start to see all this, this bad behavior. So when I was a child, you know, like I said, the, the atheist worldview just seemed obvious to me. And it was when I got to college that I really kind of solidified my atheism. You know, I said a moment ago that when my, when my dad was growing up in rural Texas, they had not encountered many atheists. Because if, if you were an atheist back then, you did not say anything about it. Um, and even, even when I was in, in college, in, in the late 90s, there, there's still, at least where I went to college, there was still not a lot of experience addressing atheism. I ended up at a school called Texas A&M University, which at the time was the most religious public university in the country. There were 70,000 students there, and I am pretty sure that 69,999 of them were devout Christians. And I, I, I was positive that I was the only atheist on campus. And the reason I went there is because they, it used to be a, a military school. That's where my dad went. It had a very different culture. And my dad told me that I could go to school anywhere I wanted, but the money for my education was going to Texas A&M University. <laughs> so I started out there. And these poor Christians had never really dealt with atheists. And so it was, it was just the blind leading the blind in terms of our dialogues, because I wasn't actually very deep in my own philosophy, as you'll see in a minute. So I would ask them these ridiculous questions like, what proof do you have for God? You know, confusing proof with evidence and just all sorts of fallacies that you see with modern atheists. And they'd be like, oh, read, this read the book of John. You know, it answers all your questions. And I'd be like, oh, but I think the Bible's fiction, so you know, this is not helpful. And it was just the most, like we all needed to stop talking about it. I mean, I didn't know what I was talking about. The Christians didn't know where they, what they were talking about. It was a mess. So I transferred to the University of Texas at Austin on the sole grounds that A&M was too religious. I could not live around Christians anymore. 
And if you are not familiar with Austin, which is where the University of Texas is, here is the only thing you need to know about my city, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Because people think Texas, it must be religious, it must be conservative. No, not Austin. Uh, in a recent mayoral election, not one, but two homeless drag queens were on the ballot, and neither one came in last. So <laughs> that's Austin. <laughs> and so I get to UT campus, and I look around, and I'm like, ah, atheists, yeah, this is more like it. But an interesting thing happened. Being surrounded by all these atheists, being in an all like openly atheistic community, we could actually really go deep on atheist ideas. We could actually start to have a really serious discussions about all the implications of this worldview of ours. Because that's one thing about my father, and then a lot of, one of the most common questions I get is, what, what, what do my parents think of my conversion now? And my dad is actually very supportive, because when I was a child, he always said, I am raising you to seek truth and question assumptions more than I'm raising you to be an atheist per se. He said, I don't want you to ever believe anything that someone tells you just because they speak with authority or just because you feel like you have to believe it. Always question assumptions. And when you assent to an idea, you know, when you say that I agree with this ideology, follow it through to all of its logical conclusions. Because that's something that, as an engineer, that's something that would drive my dad crazy. You know, when someone would say, I believe this one thing, but they'd only go this deep in it. And then they, they didn't actually let it impact too many areas of their lives. So I thought I would do that, finally. I'm around some atheists. I don't have to defend myself all the time. So we can talk about this. So we started to talk about, you know, oh, we're such good people. Oh, man, goodness. You know, we, we're secular humanists. You know, we believe in serving people. And so we'd say, you know, like, there were a few stray, I wouldn't say Christians, but, you know, there were some pagans and some Wiccans on campus, you know, people who believed they had some sort of, you know, belief system. And sometimes they would ask us, like, okay, you, you don't have a God, you know, from whom you derive your moral code. So how do you say that this moral code that you believe in that prizes selflessness and, and goodness and love, how do you know that that is, is the most objectively true moral code of, of other moral codes that you could choose from? And we would say, oh, well, you know, if you look at human evolution, humans were evolved to live in peaceful communities because we thrive when there is not war and when there is cooperation. And so therefore, you know, we're designed to, to want to treat other people well and, and to seek goodness. But then we thought, well, you know, also if you look at evolution, you know, we, another thing that comes out is that evolution kind of favors the, the survival of the fittest, you know, that you could say that more people tend to survive if the strong are in power and if you get the weak people out of the way. And suddenly we realize, you know, there is a, a moral code out there in which it is said that it's okay for the strong to dominate the weak and it's okay to get people out of the way if they're holding back human progress. And I realized that I could not say objectively that my goodness and love-based moral code was objectively superior to the more ruthless, let the strong dominate, get the weak, out of the way moral code. I could not do that while sticking to a strictly atheist materialist worldview. Another thing that, that came up, that one of the things I really detail in the book is that this sense of nihilism came to me naturally. 
that, you know, when I first realized, I, I, was, I was looking for fossils, I was kind of an amateur paleontologist, and when I first realized that my fate was no different than these fossils, that when I internalized all the implications of this worldview in which we are nothing more than just chemical reactions that return to nothing when we die, I just thought, why get out of bed in the morning? This is unbelievably depressing. And, and I thought that being around other atheists, we would be able to have an open dialogue about that. Now, I didn't think atheism was wrong. I had never questioned this worldview. I, I very much thought it was right, but I did think it was depressing. <laughs> and I thought that it might be refreshing to have an honest dialogue with other atheists about that. And I was surprised at the hostility that I met when I would say, you know, so like all our experiences of love and like every amazing thing that's happened to you, every memory, it is nothing. It is chemical reactions in your brain and it, and it just ceases to exist as if it never were the moment you die. It's like, you know, you can, you can create a number that is the most beautiful number in the world, but when you multiply it by zero, it's zero. And it doesn't matter when that multiplication happens. It is destined to become zero. Now, I understand that there are some atheists who might disagree with that. They, they find ways to find meaning. You know, my friends would say, like, well, my meaning is to, you know, pass on goodness, to make an impact, on, you know, on the world for people who come after me. And I'd say, like, well, they're just chemical reactions that are, like, destined for nothing, too, so I'm still depressed. But, you know, some people manage to find, you know, meaning. And, and, and I could see how, okay, I guess reasonable minds can differ. But the main reaction I got from, you know, the atheist community was, shut up. <laughs> like, I, I, I met a lot of hostility when I would try to ask these basic questions saying, you know, let's go deep on, on, our, on our philosophy. And <laughs> I, I think that the way that we, like me and the other atheists I knew, and, and even the Christians that I encountered at A&M, I think that the way we ended up in this situation where all of us, you know, our, our, our worldviews, the Christians and atheists alike, really, our worldviews were about this deep. Our, our knowledge of what we believed was this deep. And I think the reason is we were all products of this education system where we're encouraged to absorb data, you know, get the facts right, learn the numbers, do well on the tests. But, you know, the study of philosophy has been, you know, completely eradicated from our belief system. Like, before we are, you know, we're told to go out into the world and think about things. But there is no part of the modern American education system in which we are first told how to think, how to observe the world. If you ever want a little entertainment, do yourself a favor and look up the London Review of Books review of Richard Dawkins' God Delusions. It's, I've almost memorized it. I mean, like, I've probably memorized it more than I've memorized scripture. It's, it's so funny to me. It, it's, the most, it's one of the most witty things I've ever read. And it talks about the God delusion. You've probably heard of it because that's the book your 17-year-old atheist nephew keeps telling you you need to read. It's by the big professional atheist, Richard Dawkins. And um, it's, it, people talk about this book. I mean, they speak of it as if it's the atheist Bible. And it, it was so played up that I was going to, you know, review it and kind of debunk it for my blog. But I admit, I, I was a little intimidated, like, man, I hear this thing is amazing. Like, it has made a lot of people atheists. 
And I read it and like he is mixing up, you know, he doesn't understand the distinction between what Protestants and Catholics believe. And literally from one paragraph to the next, he'll, you know, make fun of devotion to, you know, Our Lady of the Rosary. But then in the next uh, paragraph, he, he criticizes Christians for believing in predestination. And it is just, it's a morass. I mean, it's impossible to even begin to take this thing apart because it's such a mess. So the London Review of Books got a hold of it. And, and I memorized this quote because it was so funny to me. I can just hear their British accents, too. They said, imagine someone holding forth on biology whose only knowledge of the subject is the British Book of Birds, and you have some idea of what it's like to read Dawkins on theology. <laughs> And that was me. Like, I mean, I seriously, like, I should not admit this in public, but I seriously thought that I was being, like, radical by saying, like, what proof is there for God? Why would a loving God allow suffering? Ooh, I bet they never thought of that one. Like, I was, I was like a 20-year-old grown woman thinking that seriously, like, people had not really thought about these questions. They were going to be like, oh, look at her and her amazing questions. But I was a product of this system where we did not learn about philosophy. We really did not know that people had been thinking about and writing about these questions for, oh, 5,000 years or so. so. So fast forward. I met my husband. And I did not find out until a few months after we were dating that not only did he believe in God, but he actually considered himself a Christian, which was very shocking to me. Um, to, to give you an idea of his background, he was raised very, very poor. He was raised by a single mother, and she grew up so poor, like they didn't, I mean, she didn't have running water or electricity when she went to high school. That's how poor she was. So she was still really poor when she was a single mother raising my husband. And she had heard on the TV shows and in the movies of these schools called Harvard and Yale. And she, and she told my, uh, my husband, her son, she said, you know, I think you won't be poor anymore if you go to one of these schools. So go to one of those. And he was like, okay. And in typical, my, in typical fashion for my husband, he did. Um, he went to Yale. He graduated in three years with honors, Columbia Law School, Stanford Business School. And he studied towards a master's in computer science at the graduate school um, at Stanford because why not? <laughs> and to give you an idea of what a departure this was from his background, when they were driving out to Stanford, his mother kept saying to him, are you sure this Stancliffe place is reputable? <laughs> she had never heard of it and was worried that maybe he'd gotten caught up in a, a fly-by-night institution. He also recently became a CPA and he has cut off, no more education. <laughs> he was, he was saying, the other day he mused aloud, like, we don't have enough pro-life doctors. And I said, stop, no, no, we do, we do. There are more than enough, it's fine, it's fine. Uh, so, so he's a really smart guy. So it shocked me that he said that he was a Christian. Now this is, this is Austin, so the fact that he never prayed, never went to church, had not touched his Bible in five years, and did not follow pretty much a single element of the Christian moral code except for not murdering people, that all made sense in Austin, that yeah, you can be a Christian and, and do all that. And, and I asked him one time, I said, you don't do anything that I would traditionally associate with Christians, because like, I've lived in the Bible, but I know some Christians. And he said, look, he said, I, I, don't, I don't really even know who Jesus was. I don't even know if he was divine. I don't know anything. He said, except for one thing. He told me, he said, I was baptized when I was 13 in a full dunk Baptist baptism. 
And he said, when I came up from that water, he said, I encountered something real. I encountered someone real. And he said, I've, you know, I don't go to church. I don't know what I believe about Christianity or even about Jesus. But I do know, and I will never deny, that I encountered a real living presence at the moment of my baptism. And that was intriguing to me because normally when I heard people say things like that, I was like, well, they're an idiot. <laughs> but I couldn't say that about this guy. You know, he was smart because, you know, that's how it works with stereotypes. You want to reinforce your stereotypes. So you look for things that validate that. So that kind of planted a seed. I thought, okay, um, you know, it, it showed me that you can be a reasonable thinking person and believe in God. Didn't know how that was true, but I saw that it was true. And I thought that that was interesting. So, and also, I met quite a few friends of his from Yale, Leia Labresco and I were talking about this earlier, that they also converted either to Catholicism or to the Orthodox Church. And I started, all of these friends from Yale were doing this. So it, it just planted a seed. And it made me realize that I looked really stupid when I was talking about how, like, oh, only the smart people are atheists. They aren't smart Christians. I suddenly realized how, how ignorant I had made myself look by making that statement all those years. So fast forward again, we got married in a completely secular ceremony. I wore a dark purple dress and we learned the hard way that if you are going to reinvent the wheel on a thousands of year old tradition, you might want to rehearse it first. <laughs> we were too busy planning the after party and um, our actual ceremony only ended up being seven minutes long which was awkward because Joe had friends flying in from all over the world for it. <laughs> and then one of my Texan relatives, when I was walking out in my purple dress, was like, where's the bride? <laughs> so, awkward. And by the way, when we converted, because all these people had been at our wedding, you could tell how fast the U.S. mail system works because I put in our Christmas newsletter that we had become Catholic. All these people who had come to our wedding, first the phones start ringing from people in Austin. And then the next day it was like, you know, people in Nebraska and New Mexico. And then like four days later it was like California and New York. Like, you did what? Like, those two people, what? So it was after my first child was born that I started to really reevaluate atheism. I hadn't thought about it in a while. You know, all, all those questions that I had experienced at UT of, you know, how do we say that this goodness-based moral code is objectively true? And, you know, it, 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 there, there were just all these questions that, that, um, that I had had when I first got to UT. And I got a really good job after college. And so I dealt with those questions by having cocktails and traveling and pretending that, that it was all fine and just burying it under the rug. But once my first child was born, I decided, you know, it's one thing if I know just for me that I follow this belief system that I'm starting to see doesn't make a lot of sense. And, you know, I had started to see that we atheists did not have a lock on honesty, on intellectual honesty. Our belief system was not completely internally consistent. And we had just as many assumptions left to question as the Christians. That was kind of fine when it just impacted me. But once my son was born, I realized, you know, if I'm going to pass this on to someone, I, I just kind of want to make sure it's right. <laughs> so let's think about this a little more. And so I remember he was like two weeks old, and I was holding him, and I looked down at him. And in the spirit, you know, like my dad told me to do, I thought, okay, let's, let's think through this belief system. Let's follow it to all of its logical conclusions. So I said, okay, this baby, my son, what is he in a strict atheist materialist worldview? I said, oh, 
he is the cutest little randomly evolved set of chemical reactions that is destined for nothing. And I just thought, like, I looked at him like, this is false. Not because I want it to be false, not because I don't want my son to be, you know, meaningless chemical reactions, but because it is false and I know it's false. And what I realized at that moment was that atheism did not have the lexicon to capture the human experience. I think, I think in a lot of ways I had been sheltered from just the fullness of the, the human experience before that moment. And suddenly I realized, you know, atheism, I mean, it explains science, you know, gravity. I mean, I mean, it understands like the material world. But there's this other layer of the human experience, this layer of love, this, you know, the, this yearning we have for goodness. And I thought, I believe that the love I feel for this child and that all those yearnings I had to be good and to seek the good, even when I was an atheist, in that moment I thought, I am as sure as anything I have ever known that that sense of love, that goodness, comes from something outside the chemical reactions in my brain. I know as much as I have ever known anything that this is real and, this, and that this love I experienced would still exist and, and would still be meaningful even if the entire world blew up tomorrow. But I didn't know what to do with that thought. Like, what do you do next? So I had grown up in the Bible Belt. I knew about prayer, so I thought, Okay, I'll say a prayer. <laughs> I'd never done that before. But I didn't know how you say a prayer. You know, where do you distinguish, like, what distinguishes just talking from yourself to, like, talking to the other thing? I mean, do you say, like, is this thing on? I mean, like, how do you start that? So I just kind of started talking, and I said, if anything or anyone is out there, I am, I'm open to hearing from you now. Um, and, and again, I grew up in the Bible Belt, so I knew that if a personal, you know, monotheistic God exists, he's going he's gonna to snap to it. I mean, there's going to be some lights. There's going to be some angels. Maybe like a really weird coincidence happens immediately afterwards. And so when nothing happened, I thought, well, God doesn't exist. Check that box off. So um, Buddhism. <laughs> like, because I, I, I was certain that there was something else out there. But I thought the fact that I had said a prayer and nothing happened meant that the one true God that the Christians are always talking about or the Muslims or whoever, that must not exist. So I started dabbling in Buddhism. It's required by law in Austin that you're a Buddhist for at least a couple of months. So I got, I got that off my list. And... And then one day I went into this bookstore and the minute I walked in the door, it was like kind of like the equivalent of that back wall out there. I see this book and it was almost like there was a spotlight on it. It was the strangest thing. I had to go see what this book was. And I picked it up and it was called The Case for Christ. And I realized, oh, I'm in the Christianity section. Like, what if one of my friends sees me? This is so awkward. I, I had literally, I had never been in the Christianity section of a bookstore or a library, except for this one time in the fourth grade when I took all the Bibles and put them in the fiction section. <laughs> and I thought I was the edgiest fourth grader ever. Um, but that was the last time I had been in the Christianity section of a bookstore. So... So I say, oh, no, I have a Jesus book. This is awful. I have to put it down. But I happen to see that it was written by a for, supposedly a former atheist. Now, this was a little game of mine when I encountered so-called former atheists who now claim to be religious. Because in my mind, it was absolutely impossible that an atheist could become a Christian. I believe that they could maybe believe in something spiritual, but I, I did not think that was a possible 
thing. I mean, like what it would be like people saying they, you know, are now like following the tooth fairy and asking her for all the good presents. Like, really? Like that's the, only insane people do that. So one of the things I would always notice, you know, if you look closely at this former atheist testimony, is they would say things like, "Oh yes, when I was godless, I felt so weighed down by my sin." And I'd be like, ah, "Atheists don't believe in sin, so you're lying." And I, I kind of like to do that with these former atheist testimonies. But you know, a funny thing happened. This guy went to Yale Law. He was the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. His name is Lee Strobel, Protestant, really nice guy. I've since interacted with him quite a bit. He's wonderful. Um, and and I, I was really you know, attracted to, to what he said because his, his manner of writing was very, um, very just calm, you know, not hit you over the head. And what he said in the introduction is he said, I am not expecting you to convert to Christianity after reading this book. I don't think that this book is going to convince you, you know, to start going to church on Sunday. He said, my only goal, and this is a typical, you know, kind of lawyer uh, way to propose it. He said, my only goal is that I want to show you that there is enough evidence that the person of Jesus Christ was real, someone who really existed, who does still exist, and is God incarnate. He said, I just want to convince you that there is enough evidence for that, that this is worth exploring further that I'm not claiming that I'm going to be able to make the whole case right now. And the book wasn't perfect. There were a couple of chapters that I thought, oh, that just makes no sense. But I found enough. He, he did his job because there was enough there that I thought, okay, all right, maybe this is worth you know, exploring a little further. And I go into more details in the book. I'll just read you one passage that I thought, okay, you know, this is kind of interesting. So Strobel is, um, is interviewing J.P. Moreland, a, a Protestant uh, pro professor, a philosopher. He has a background in chemistry, really smart guy. So Moreland says, when Jesus was crucified, his followers were discouraged and depressed. They no longer had confidence that Jesus had been sent by God because they believed that anyone crucified was accursed by God. So they dispersed. The Jesus movement was all but stopped in its tracks. Then, after a short period of time, we see them abandoning their occupations, regathering, and committing themselves to spreading a very specific message. That Jesus Christ was the Messiah of God who died on the cross, returned to life, and was seen alive by them. And he goes on to point out, you know, they, they spent the rest of their lives proclaim, cr proclaiming this. There was very little payoff from a human point of view, including, you know, being tortured to death and whatnot. Um, and then, and so Strobel made an interesting point. He said, people are sometimes willing to die for things that they believe are true but are not actually true. But nobody is willing to die for something they know to be false. And you have all these people who are willing to die saying, I saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Nobody's going to die for that if it's not true, especially not die in a, in a particularly torturous way. So Strobel did his job. I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to look into this a little more. Now, I had never owned a Bible. I knew nothing about the Bible. I, didn't, I was into this idea that we live in a post-Christian world and Christianity is irre irrelevant. So I intentionally kept myself ignorant from, from Christianity. Very brilliant move there. I didn't even understand the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I went to a bookstore, like, oh, all these different Bibles. Who knew there was more than one kind? Wow. So I picked the one that looked least like a Bible. It just had a plain, nondescript cover. 
Um, and when I bought it, I did the same thing I did with the Strobel book. When I checked out, I loudly said, I'll need a gift receipt. <laughs> this is for my friend. She's a Bible person. I don't know. <laughs> and then put it in the opaque bag and sneak out in shame. So the Bible's a book, right? You start books on page one. It's a book about Jesus, right? So the main character must come in on page 30, 40? <laughs> so I'm reading. You know, I knew from cultural osmosis that there are going to be some fishermen involved, some nice stories about, like, loaves and fishes and bread and wine. And I'm in Deuteronomy, like, oh, my God, what? They know this. This is crazy. And, like, get to numbers and, like, it's all craziness. And I was driving Joe crazy because he'd come home stressed from work and, you know, be like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do about payroll. And it'd be like, have you tried sacrificing a bird over a clay pot and dipping some yarn in its blood? Like, it is right. It's in the Bible, Joe. You're a Christian. You're supposed to be doing this. So he finally cut this off and was like, You've got to skip to the New Testament for everyone's sake. So I was like, oh, the New Testament. Good. This is going to clear it all up. Thank goodness. Uh, it didn't. I truly, I did not know what to expect from the New Testament. But I mean, I thought there would be some bullet points of like, here's, you know, the moral code. And I thought it would end with a call to action. Like, you know, now what you do is you go down to your local church. I mean, surely it ends with a call to action of, like, what you do if you want to follow this Jesus guy. So I'm, like, you know, reading the end of Revelation. Like, is there an action item for me here? Like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing with like, people floating in the sky and stuff. Like, this is crazy. So the things I noticed about the Bible were I did not see a clear case for what I knew to be the traditional Christian moral code. You know, take euthanasia, for example. Is, are, is it okay, is, is it morally okay as a Christian, you know, to support euthanasia? I didn't, I didn't, certainly didn't see it in the Bible. So I'd go online and I would, I would, you know, do Google searches, like what is the biblical case, you know, for whatever, for this moral issue, that moral issue, abortion, uh, euthanasia. And I would find, you know, this Christian over here says, oh yes, it's, you know, in certain circumstances, yes, euthanasia is necessary and it's good. And here's some scripture passages that really back that up. And then the Christian over here would say, uh, no, actually, no, that's actually really wrong and you can't do that. And here are scripture passages to back that up. There were as many different opinions as there were people, and everyone was very confident that they had scripture on their side. And so in some of these, you know, diet com boxes or whatever, I'd say, well, how am I supposed to know, um, you know, how do Christians do this? How do you figure out the right answer? And they said, well, you know, you need to read the Bible for yourself and just make sure that, you know, you're looking at the New Testament passages in light of their, you know, what they derive from in the Old Testament. And I thought, don't Christians have jobs? <laughs> like, when am I going to find time to gain an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible so that I can, like, interpret all these verses, like, in context with each other? And by the way, this requires literacy. The world literacy rate is only 80%, and that is astronomically higher than it's been in any other time in history. The other thing it requires is the printing press. You know, the idea of like me owning my personal Bible in concordance and you know, doing all this research to find the Christian moral code, is that would be nonsensical before the printing press. You know, the, to, to have a Bible, just a Bible, let alone you know, other source books, I mean, that would be the equivalent of a few years' wages for, for a poor family before the printing press. What I saw 
was a system that works really well in modern America, but does not work at all on a universal scale. I did not see a universally applicable system here. And some people didn't seem to think that was that important. They said, you know, well, uh, we Christians these days, we agree to disagree. <laughs> you know, we don't really have the same moral code, but that's okay because we follow Jesus. To me, as an outsider, it seemed pretty clear that it wasn't okay. Because the question I needed answered was, who is Jesus Christ? Because the one thing I did get from the New Testament is that if I was going to follow this guy and become a Christian, it was not going to be all fun and games. I mean, the one thing that is very clear from the New Testament is that life is going to be really hard if you're a Christian. And so I wanted to be pretty clear on who am I following? Who is Jesus Christ? And that, that's what I was asking the, the modern Christian community. And the Jesus who, you know, thinks abortion is just fine and is okay with euthanasia and, you know, believes that like, oh yeah, just cohabitate, don't worry about getting married. That is a very different Jesus than the one who says we must respect all human life at any cost. Marriage is ordered toward procreation. I mean, these are two different Jesuses. And I needed to know which one was the real one before I could make a decision about whether I was going to follow him. So like a good nerd, I turned to the blog world. I started a blog. And I actually recruited people to answer my questions. I recruited Christians because um, being a loudmouth atheist who is very anti-Christian doesn't tend to leave you with a lot of faithful Christian friends. Um, so I thought, maybe I could find some Christians on the internet. So I started a blog, and it was just anonymous at first because, oh, my, my friends found out that I was, like, dabbling in Christianity. Like, nothing more embarrassing could ever happen. So I went to some of these big atheist forums, you know, where you've, you've probably seen them, like, where people debate in the, the comments. Like, the guy will write a post, like, Christianity is stupid, and all the atheists come in, like, yeah, it is so stupid. And then there'll be a couple of lone Christians, you know, <laughs> defending themselves. So this one actually had a lot of Christians, and there were a few of them. I had never seen, I would never encountered people so intelligent and so well-educated. I mean, they knew about science, they, they knew more about science than the atheists, but they also knew more about the human experience than the atheists. You know, that idea that atheism did not have the lexicon to describe everything I had experienced as a human being. These people had the whole package. It was amazing. So I invited them, I, I would email these people directly and say, I'm an atheist, I think, actually I guess I'm kind of agnostic, I don't know what's going on, come help me and answer my questions. Well it turns out, this is where it came out, every single person that I had recruited identified solely on the criteria that they could make mincemeat of atheistic arguments to a man they were Catholic. I had recruited all Catholics on my blog by accident. <laughs> so. So these people, so I'm saying, you know, this system is nuts. Like these, you know, all of these Christians, they're worshiping a different Jesus. And, you know, it requires literacy. It requires the printing press. I mean, this, this is just nonsense. And they said, you know, here's an idea. What if before Jesus went back to heaven, he founded a church? And through that church, just like he did with the writers of the Bible, he inspired imperfect people to convey perfect truth through this living church that could speak the truth 
in all times, in all places. You know, he said that, that all these commenters said, you know, we believe that he, that he did this through the writers of the Bible. What if he didn't stop doing that? What if there is a living church that is around to this day? And I thought, yes, yes, that, yes, that's how illiterate people could come to know God. That's how people could come to know God before the printing press. They even talked a little bit about the Eucharist, and I thought, oh, that, oh that's a great idea, like, because then you can, like, receive God physically. Like, I love that. Yes, yes, yes. And they said, that's the Catholic Church. And I was like, no, 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 no. Are you kidding? Can't become Catholic. It's like anti-woman, like oppressive, corrupt. Like that. No, I would never become Catholic. And Joe, the good Southern Baptist, was like, "Okay, look, you've been like talking to all these internet people, and now you're talking to Catholic internet people. I mean, it doesn't get worse than Catholic internet people." He's like, "Cut this off." So, but I had nowhere else to turn because I had become so intrigued by the figure of Jesus Christ, and I can't explain it other than to say it's like, it's like a magnet had been activated, and I could not walk away. And, and so I, this idea, this Catholic idea of, of the living church instilled with God's own authority, which imperfect people speak perfect truth, it, it was the only theory that worked. And so I thought I would give it a shot, like I would just try, you know, try following its moral code and, and do some research and, and just see if this works. And a crazy thing happened. You know, uh, the, the church has all these rules that are so maligned, you know, like, oh, the church hates freedom and fun, and so like it oppresses you with all the bad rules. <laughs> so I actually thought I would try following them and, and also see, like, I don't know, is there there a reason the church has these rules? I mean, I hear there's not, but maybe I could just look into this. And Joe jo was along with me, and we were both dumbstruck by the sheer amount of wisdom contained, with this church, contained within this church. I've heard other converts talk about this moment when you just like, you almost fall to your knees to realize I could spend 200 years doing nothing but soaking up the wisdom contained in this church and it still wouldn't be enough to even scratch the surface. It was like standing before an ocean. I mean, you just feel so awed and overwhelmed. And yeah, and it turns out all those rules, I came to see them, to, to borrow from an analogy that I love that I heard someone else use, I came to see them as a prescription for a life of love more than as confining rules. It's like you don't have to follow your doctor's prescription. You know, he can tell you to like, you know, take this pill and do this thing. You could blow that off if you want to, but who are, you're really doing yourself a disservice if you do that. And particularly, and I, I have a whole separate talk about this and I can't go into detail. All the details are in the book, but the issue of abortion and contraception was what changed, was, was what convinced Joe and I that this church has a wisdom that people cannot come up with on their own. Because I was rabidly pro-choice, like don donating to now and Planned Parenthood, pro-choice. And I, mean, I didn't even know you could be pro-contraception. Like, who's against contraception? Like, I thought it was an urban legend that like, there were some people that were, that were still against that. And I was so thrilled, and I went on my blog like, guys, the theology of the body, oh, it's so nice, and oh, you guys got to try this. And, and God and you know, the saints were up in heaven like, watch what's going to happen next. It's about to get really funny. So I'm still in RCIA. I got a deep vein thrombosis, really dangerous blood clot in a major vein. 
turns out that I have a blood clotting disorder that is exacerbated by pregnancy. It makes pregnancy very, very dangerous for me. And the only way to treat it was to be on an FDA category X drug for months after the baby was born. Like, you cannot conceive while you're on this drug. It's like 90% chance of terrible birth defects. So basically, the, the potential convert who was yapping on her blog, like, oh, theology of the body, oh, throw out your contraception, it's great, just became the poster child for contraception. <laughs> and so suddenly, I'm sitting in these doctor's offices, and I, and I had always prided myself on atheism. Something that I saw with, with me that I really see still in the atheist community today is, you know, Richard Dawkins and his crew have done an amazing job of branding atheism. The new atheism is, it's this deep, but it is so well branded. And it's now like a shorthand for saying, I'm smart. That to be an atheist is to be part of the intelligentsia. I see that a lot with atheists I know, especially young atheists, that they tend to be very smart people who feel like they are not recognized for being smart. And so talking about how they're an atheist is a way of like a shorthand way of signaling to people like, oh no, I'm actually really smart and educated. And I had very much fallen into that. So atheism was a real source of pride for me. And so suddenly I find myself in the doctor's office. Not only am I not an atheist, but I'm like the crazy religious nut who's like in their minds, you know, putting her life on the line for her stupid belief system. And I, I was still in RCIA. I mean, this is a lot for someone in RCIA. And again, it's a whole separate talk. I detail it in the book. But, but suffice it to say, what I found by, by sticking to what the church teaches is, you know, Joe pointed out, he said, do you, do you think that God would give us this system of, of rules, this prescription, if it would lead to misery? You know, do, do you, don't you believe in God? And if, if you believe in God, he said, think of what your atheist father would say. If you believe in God and you believe that he founded this church and gave us this prescription, I mean, don't, don't you think that it's going to ultimately make your life better in some way? And at the time I was like, I believe in God, but I didn't know I was going to have to act like I believe in God. <laughs> this is a lot. <laughs> but long story short, the, what, what I found is that the prescription really does work. It did make my life a lot more difficult. It does to this day. If it, some of you might know, I had <laughs> my doctors turned out to be right about this clotting disorder. I had bilateral pulmonary embolisms, blood clots in my lungs in the last pregnancy. Now I really need to like <laughs> avoid pregnancy. And so it's a cross. It really is. It is a difficult, difficult thing to be in my position. But the prescription works. That through this church, I found God gives us the rules for living a life of love. And what I found is the more I followed these rules, the harder my life got and the more joy it contained. And so, spoiler for the book, we became Catholic. <laughs> Joe and I both became Catholic at Easter Vigil 2007. And um, it's funny, at our wedding, we, the, back the crazy one, we had to make a big statement about how the state can't tell us what it means to be married. So we had actually gone to the Justice of the Peace a few days before and gotten the little certificate. Then we had the crazy purple dress wedding. Then we had our marriage validated in the church. And my, ba my Baptist mother-in-law says, how many times are y'all going to get married? <laughs> um, and so, you know, in conclusion, when, when I look back on my story, and, and what, I, what I hope that you'll see if, if you read the book, and, and what I hope you'll take away from this talk, is not only was, um, was this a search for happiness that ended up finding its fulfillment, um, as an aside, the, the title comes from C.S. Lewis's quote, where he says, all that we call human history 
is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And so I, as soon as I heard that, I, I knew that that had to be the title for my book. So not only is this a, um, a story of fulfillment of happiness, but I really see my conversion as not a departure from my atheism, but that it was the fulfillment of my atheism. You know, my father, when I was a kid, he trained me so rigorously, always search for truth. Don't ever stop your search for truth until you find it. And I am so thrilled that I am Catholic today and that I finally found that truth. Thank you. Any questions? We have time for questions if you just raise okay. your hand. Yeah, uh, I've read your book. I've I've followed your blog. I think <laughs> okay. I discovered it five years ago. Oh wow! I became, yeah, I'm a, a former lawyer, but I became a stay-at-home mom, and I was desperate to read something intelligent that I can relate to. And you're very intelligent. So, and then you found my blog too. <laughs> <laughs> I, told, I told all my friends about it. I've bought them all the book. I just love it. Oh, that's um, thank you. But this, I don't think this question is particularly. Well, I, I can relate so much to being. I've always been. I'm a cradle Catholic, but. Uh, in college, I went to a Catholic college, and then I went to um, UVA for law school. But I've been called stupid so many times. <laughs> I completely relate to that. But what I'm curious about um, would be, do you think um, secular humanists, what, is there anything that we Catholics who really, really try to live this life can do um, with our... I don't know. I just feel we have a secular humanist relative, and she's actually watching our kids right now, oh, <laughs> so we could be here. But being good secular humanist, she's a very good secular humanist. She's right. loving, but I'm just wondering: is there anything that people did or said that had any impact on you? It sounds like it was mostly an intellectual conversion, and God was working on you. But do you have advice for evangelizing, even in quiet, subtle ways, so that we don't sound like completely crazy loons? I, right. I love that question. Um, you know, in the first few years after I converted, I really understood my conversion to be purely intellectual. And so the advice I always gave people was like, ooh, tell them to read this book and hit them over the head with this one. And then as I had a little space and as I thought about it, I realized, and I was almost, you know, I'm almost like ashamed to admit this, emotions played into my conversion much more than I would have ever admitted and than I even realized at the time. And so with people like that, I, I, I strongly recommend, you know, showering them in, in the love of Christ. And like, it, I think it's easy, you know, when someone is, especially if they're making little jabs at what you believe, it's easy to, you know, react with hostility. And what I try to do, and I'm very bad at doing, but I think it works when you can do it, is to try to find something good about them and build them up and you know, say something like, you, you are so smart, you are so funny. Like, keep asking those questions. You know? and because one of the things that it's unpopular to say, but I think it's true, in, when you hang out with mostly atheists, especially as you know, after you're past the college phase and it's not new and awesome anymore, there's kind of a dearth of real love. And I don't mean to say that atheists are not loving. The atheists I know are some of the best people I know. But there's a dearth of, like, warmth there. And so I, I really believe that it, that it can be very effective to compliment, you know, the secular humanists. Like, oh, I, I love that, you know, that that's your moral code. And just be very warm. And if the opportunity presents itself, just, just ask gentle questions. Like, you know, so, so tell me, you know, where do you derive that moral code? And, you know, what would you say to someone who has the more, like, Stalin type of atheistic moral code, you know? Um, so that's, and, and, but, you know, it's over the long haul. I mean, there's, you don't convert people on the spot. So, yes? I thought your thoughts about uh, education being at the root of the problem 
Your thoughts about education being at the root of the problem with most Americans today is spot on. It, you know, it's all due to John Dewey and the progressives back around 1900. They really stripped, uh, I mean, religion was considered the queen of the philosophies. Right. And you, you got philosophy even in late high school. Right. I mean, George Washington studied, I only had high school education, he studied Latin and Greek. And it wasn't to speak to, to Romans and Greeks, it was to read the Bible. Right. And, and if you went to college, you also learned Hebrew. Yeah. So, so religion was so central to a classical education. And of course now, you know, you get none of it. Even a PhD, you wouldn't get it. So the question is, what will you do about your children, educating them? <laughs> we homeschool. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, yeah, and so I have very little free time, but, but that's exactly why, because it's, it's important. And right now, by the way, at this moment, homeschool looks like watching Netflix, but I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get us back on track. Um, but, but in the main reason I do, is, um, you know, and sometimes I wonder, are they, you know, am I hitting all the different facts, you know, that they would get in the public school? But one thing I know we are getting right, because it's my number one priority, is that before they go out and start thinking about things, we first train them how to think about things and give them that background in, in philosophy. to public school, what would you have done to um, sort of supplement that at right. home? That's a great question. You know, I, I think honestly there's, having a family dinner every night can go a long way because I think, I, I know kids who are, you know, they're in college now, solid Catholics can defend their faith so well, really get it, and they went to public school, but they were just very close with their parents. They understood that their parents believed that they were not getting a full education in the public school system. And so that was kind of on their radar, that when I have an opportunity to study philosophy and even look into the history of education a bit, I should, I should take that chance. And one thing, if you're interested in these issues, one of the most paradigm-shifting books I ever read is called Hold On to Your Kids by Gordon Neufeld. And, you know, honestly, the, the last half of the book, he talks about discipline and stuff, and I, I didn't find that as useful. But in the first part of the book, he, he talks about this concept of peer orientation and how children have always been oriented. You know, their family was their true north compass point. Their family was their home base. And the modern public, public ed education system leaves them peer oriented, which is a very psychologically distressful state to be in. It leads to all sorts of problems. So now that, that really, really shifted the, the way I see this issue. And again, it, it shifted pretty much every choice I've made with education. Again, the book's called Hold On to Your Kids. But that, that made me see, you know, if you have kids who are oriented towards your family, I think they will pick up a lot of these ideas and values, even if, you know, they're not getting a perfect classical education. Leah, did you have a question? <laughs> Uh, when you talk about kind of the prescriptions the church has, um, it seems like we're often in the state where there just isn't a pharmacy nearby to fill them at easily, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, yeah. Where so much of the world around us is premised on constraints that run directly against them. Right. Like, you know, technology makes the boundary between work and not even just the Sabbath, but any free time very permeable. Um, and I'm curious kind of uh, what to do that either as individuals we can do to support other people and make it easier to follow these rules, that it's not actually meant to be quite this hard, right? right? It's just that right. the entire world is right. built up around assuming they're not important. Right. Um, 
and what kind of the church should do institutionally and what we as parishioners should do and maybe talk a little about the Edel gathering that okay. you ran. Okay. Yeah, that's, um, that's a great question and it's such a big ball of wax, but I, I really, um, especially as a convert, I think, I think it is so important that we have communities, you know, and, and not just communities because, you know, let's just get it out there. I mean, at your local parish, Catholic can mean a lot of different things. And those of us who are actually trying to follow this prescription, so to speak, like, I mean, you know, God bless the people who aren't fully bought in yet. I sympathize with them, you know, and I don't mean to judge them at all, but th their lives are different. You know, when you are actually trying to make God and his sacraments and his church at the center of your life, that is a very different life than if you're not. And I really think we need to stick together and, and we need to start forming communities. And again, not just Catholic in name, but kind of find each other and support each other. And, and Leah, you asked me to mention the, the Adele gathering. Um, a friend of mine and I started this gathering. It's, it sounds too simple, but it's basically a party for Catholic women. And, and our theory was that Catholic women in particular are on the front lines of a very real war. And if you are a Catholic woman, whether you are single, whether you have kids, whether you're infertile, you feel it. I mean, it feels like we are in a war if you are trying to, to walk that walk. And so we said, we think faithful Catholic women need to know each other so that they can support each other. And, and it, was, it was a lot, I, I was telling Leah, I was driving around one day because my kids were screaming and car seats are the only legal way to strap them down. So I tend to just go drive. And I just, I passed by this venue. We talked about this, women need to know each other. I walked in and I put down a deposit. And I was like, God's gonna have to work this out. We might lose tens of thousands of dollars, but I think we need to do this. And our event, this, this party, this weekend party for faithful Catholic women, it sold out in 24 hours. And we're doing another one in Charleston next year. And it's, we haven't put tickets on sale yet. We announced a save the date notice. No word about when tickets would go on sale or how much they would be. We're already 75% sold out of our room block at the hotel. And we, and we plan for, I think, 300 people to be there. So this shows you there is a desperate, desperate need, not only for community, but to just get a break. It is hard to swim upstream. You know, it is so hard when you're the only person living this life and you're constantly bombarded from all sides. So, you know, I think men need something. I, I think all of us within our little, you know, communities within the church, I think it is so important that we get together and just enjoy each other's company so that we can remind, be reminded that, you know, there are other people who are doing this too and they're actually kind of cool and they're actually people like we might want to hang out with. Yes. Um, kind of two questions, kind of personal. How do you deal with um, your children knowing that your parents aren't Catholic and your dad's an atheist or agnostic yeah. and you're living in Austin, so at least <laughs> now you're surrounded with a lot of liberal atheists. Yeah. How to, you know, with the respect and love and how do you deal with that? And also, has Joe ever considered chronicling his like walking alongside your story. Right. You know, you comment about things that he says, but like, what was it like for Joe to? Has he ever thought about like a blog post? That? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, and Joe's Joe's conversion story is very much a part of the book, and I'm so glad I, I was able to work that in. He would like to. He he's just he's got six kids to support. He's busy. I'm actually praying for you know that he might be able to speak or, or write a book or something. Um, you know, I, in terms of r raising kids in this in a very very secular culture, I actually have done a lot of studying 
of just missionaries, and I look at it like we're in mission field. And you know, their missionary kids always grew up around people who you know did not share the faith of their parents. And so I just look at it like we're in, we're in mission field, and 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 we're very. I, I think kids tend to have the same feelings about situations as their parents. And so they see that Joe and I are very passionate about our faith, but also very comfortable with hanging out with people who don't share that faith. And, um, and I think our kids are still in the stage where it just seems so obvious to them, like, you know, something will come out like, oh, yeah, abuelo. We, my dad grew up in Mexico, so we call him abuelo. So, oh, abuelo doesn't believe in God. They're like, oh, no, that's not true. Like, I mean, they just, they don't even believe it. Um, let's do like three more questions, and I can um, I can also answer questions while I'm out there. But just in case people need to go, that, that way you can we can take other questions in there. Okay. Yes. Um, so coming from an atheist background, prayer and like having a spiritual life was not something you ever did. <laughs> right. So I guess where did you start when you decided to convert? Where did you start um, in terms of introducing a spiritual aspect to your life? That's a great question. You know, this is where I, I really saw the value in the traditional prayers of the church, like the rosary, the Our Father. You know, it's, I would be in my, my son's bedroom, and I loved having this rosary because I didn't know how to talk to God. And, and sometimes when he was going to sleep, I couldn't get out and get my little booklet. And the part where you say the creed, I'd be like, oh, I forget it. So I, just, I, would, I figured, you know, God, God, God appreciates a good effort, so I'd be like... And I believe in all the other stuff that the church teaches, and like I'd kind of ad lib and hope that God would count that. Um, so, but but that that was a great aid to me to be able to pick up a rosary, and that would bring me into prayer in in a way that because I would not have known how to directly just speak to God, and frankly, it's still kind of a mess. I'm still learning. Um, but yeah, so I, I really saw the value of of the prayers of the church. Oh. Okay. Um, I, I read your book and your blog. I'm Elizabeth. Oh, great. And, Hi. Um, I also was an atheist and had this conversion. So um, I just wanted to say that in many ways, the thing that I liked the best about your book was the thing that's like not in it, but that I saw as a very strong subtext was a kind of like even after conversion and after assenting to this belief was a struggle with feminism. Mm -hmm. And what I have come to think of for myself as the feminist imperative that still kind of bears down about, upon all of us, even Catholic women who feel like, you know, like, am I, you know, you know, this kind of like, you know, just a mom, just a homemaker, <laughs> like, and then, I mean, that's kind of my question, if you want to, or my thought, if you'd like to, can speak to that, right. that kind of, that tension. Of well, yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I, I think that it's so difficult to be a woman in this culture, and I think there are a few different things going on there. Um, I, I will say that I definitely have less angst generally about being a woman since I became Catholic, because you know, when one of the things that I really tried to go into in the book was how you know when you're in this secular mentality, the pro-contraception, pro-abortion mentality, as a woman it puts you at war with your own body. We were so terrified of fertility. I mean, nobody wanted to end up in the abortion clinic. We were so terrified of fertility that on this, on this very low level, I think we kind of hated our bodies because we were taught to fear the one thing that it was meant to do. And so I will say that I, I have a much, much more peace about being a woman since my conversion. However, I, I, I do think, like you said, I mean, there, there is this angst about, I think especially for those of us who have kids, you know, is how does that 
change my identity, you know, am I just a mom? And I actually think that a lot of that has more to do with isolation than with being Catholic per se, because, you know, I, I was an anthropology major in college, and if you look at, you know, all of human history, like, name a time, any time, any place outside of, you know, America for the past hundred years, women always lived in villages where they were surrounded by, you know, aunts and uncles and cousins, and so your identity Everyone knew you from, from when you were a little kid, like in, in cultures where women change names. Everyone knew your maiden name. Everyone knew my grandmother's maiden name. She didn't lose that identity when she got married because everyone knows she knew you know, she was Margaret Salyer, even though her last name now was Bishop. So this, um, I think that it is very hard. No one was ever designed to live in isolation. And a lot of the pain that I see among modern women, Catholic and secular, comes from the fact that nobody was meant to raise kids in isolation. Nobody was meant to live on a desert island. But we all do. And I think that it impacts women, I think, more than, more than anyone. Um, OK, one more question. Thanks for your book. There's actually six people from a book club who read your book. Oh, great. And uh, that's our monthly womanly, womanly break to oh, uh, drink and have a good time and <laughs> be with like-minded women. Um, I actually just had a comment when you were talking about peer-centered education versus family-centered education. I don't know if this was part of that book, but I read an article by a Georgia Tech professor, maybe, um, and he was commenting that one of the things that really perpetuates that is the cell phone. Oh, that's interesting. That because children and teens come home, it used to be there was one phone on the wall, and you know someone would call and ask for you, but it was to get together or do something. But now it's totally peer-centered if they have cell phones because they go to their room, they're texting, the phone's under their pillow. Yep. Anyway, just a comment to encourage parents <laughs> to not give their children cell phones that they yeah. have all day, yeah. you know, to take to their room and isolate themselves from the right. family culture and engross themselves in their peer-centered culture. That's ama you know what's amazing is that that book that I was talking about, Hold On To Your Kids, it was actually written before smartphones became popular. So, now, so you read that book and it just gives you chills that it's like gasoline has been thrown on this fire now. It's funny, I remember when I was a kid, everyone was like, the TV is destroying family life. And now I'm like, that seems so family-centered for everyone to sit down and watch the same show. Like, that's like the good old days now, you know? Okay, I will be over there signing books. I can answer tons more questions. Thank you so much for coming out.